Welcome to the Being Human podcast with Amelia Vegting and Jez Francis. Brought to you by Just Add Water. Hello, I'm Jez Francis. And I'm Amelia Vegting, and welcome to the Being Human podcast, where we explore what it means to be human in the world we find ourselves living in. And today we're going to be talking about fear. Yes, ever since we started talking about the idea of exploring human experiences, Amelia, there's one that I've really wanted to learn more about. Something that in, I'm guessing in evolutionary terms, is as old as life on Earth. Mm. Um, And that is fear. Later on, we're going to be joined by the seemingly fearless Vicky Anstey, one of the first women to appear on SAS Who Dares Wins and all-round adventurer to learn more about her relationship with fears. But Jez, before we talk all things terror, should we go into boring things about me? Absolutely. The part of our podcast where we share a humdrum moment or two from our lives to celebrate the more mundane reality of what it means to be human. So, Amelia, have you got something to kick us off with, please? I do. Well, we happen to be recording on a Monday, and Monday evenings are my favourite night to go home and sit in front of the TV and watch BBC Two's 90 Minutes from 7.30 till 9.30 of back-to-back quiz shows. Nerd alert. Yeah, big time. (laughs) Starting off with Mastermind, which usually I get a few right, but I've never quite worked out what my Mastermind specialist subject would be. Um, followed by Only Connect, which baffles me every week what the sequencing of those clues are and how on earth they ever get those. I can't even get past the hieroglyphics. No, no. no, no. <laughs> and then finally finishing with University Challenge, of which if I get a single question right, which I will admit I don't know when the last time I did, but when I do, I let the entire world know about it. Ding! So, yeah. Vegting Liverpool. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Go on, Jez, have you got a boring thing about me? Uh, it's bin related. Always a good place to start. So last Thursday, bin day mm-hmm. in our road and also train strike. So I was at home and where I work at home, I, my, the window looks out down the street so I can see what's going on basically. So the bin men had been and they, you know the way they sort of slightly haphazardly put, they, they're not quite as ordered as they might be in terms of where they put the different bins. And Right. So I saw one of my neighbours come out of her house and sort of walk down towards the bit outside my house. And so mm-hmm. I saw her look at the food waste bin. She sort of lifted it up and looked at it and sort of turned it round, looking for some kind of, you know, obviously identifiable <laughs> mark on it. A full bin investigation. Bin investigation. She then put it down and sort of walked away mm. and then turned promptly, walked straight back, picked it up and walked off with it. Oh. And then she put on the WhatsApp group, street WhatsApp group, um, I have taken a food waste bin. I think it's ours, but I'm not sure. Oh, quite honest, though. Yeah. Not doing it deceptively. So everyone. I replied instantly, I know I saw you. <laughs> And it is yours. And then almost as quickly again, (laughs) someone else jumped in with, all right, calm down, bin monitor. (laughs) You've got a new reputation in the street now. Yeah, so it couldn't get any worse. (laughs) But what they didn't realise was that after what I'd witnessed that Thursday morning, I was planning on doing a more formal bin audit anyway. So maybe um, maybe my new nickname is warranted. (laughs) Anyway, there you go. Boring things about me. So let's get into today's conversation then and start with what we've learned looking into the subject of fear. So, Amelia, what is fear and why do we experience it? 
So I think it's fair to say when we first started researching this, we realised that the depth of detail that you can go into is is just yeah. absolutely ginormous. Yeah, it's massive. Um, but in simple terms that hopefully you and I can get our heads around, fear is an emotional response to threat, real or otherwise. Um, it causes what is commonly known as the fight or flight response. Fear acts as a natural response to stimuli right in that moment, whether that be someone or something, Mm. you know, jumping out at you or, you know, when you anticipate something that we think might happen based on any previous experiences or what you've learned from others and your experiences, such as watching a horror film and then being slightly afraid to go to bed at night. And then when your phone suddenly starts ringing out of nowhere, it all creeps up on you. So fear and what we do when we experience it basically serves to keep us alive. Um, When we perceive threat, some amazing things happen almost instantly in our brains and bodies. So that primitive or instinctive circuitry uh, in our brain reacts first. I think if I've understood it correctly, that's almost like a a burglar alarm that's sort of monitoring, always there, always switched on, monitoring for things. So when that primitive circuitry sort of fires up, it triggers the release of adrenaline and other stress hormones and parts of our nervous system that set us up for fight or flight. So our breathing increases, we take on board more oxygen, our heart rate quickens, our muscles get more glucose, our vision sharpens and lots of other stuff happens Mm. physically. And then our thinking brain sort of steps in and applies some learned context um, and sort of either agrees that, you know, yes, this threat is real and we need to react, um, or it sort of reassures our instinctive brain that actually, you know, we're okay here. And then the two working together sort of process and store that experience as context for use in future situations. And all of this, by the way, happens in milliseconds. (laughs) So, you know, it's staggering the stuff that goes on in our mind when we experience that fear in the first instant. Mm, So I guess a a good example would be, um, you know, if you were camping in safari and you were to wake up to a a lion poking its head through the front front of your tent compared to seeing a lion behind a, um, you know, a reinforced window at At the the zoo. zoo, Yes, exactly. So that's a super example of how, how our brains work when we experience fear. It also reminds me that actually... Many of us seek out scary experiences, mm. you know, even enjoy them. So if you think of horror films or roller coasters or, you know, you combine the two and you've got Fright Night at Thought Park, for oh, example, yeah. which my kids uh, used to love going to, <laughs> that adrenaline rush that we initially experience also triggers the release of dopamine, which is the sort of, the, you know, the, the reward hormone, that feel-good yeah. um, chemical which means that once that event has happened or the risk has been downgraded, we can actually experience that as pleasure. And it can be a distraction from some of the other maybe less joyful things that we might have on our minds. Maybe mm. a, you know, a dissertation that's got to be handed in. I'm looking at you there. Um, or, <laughs> All um, done now. <laughs> or, or maybe a work deadline looking at me. <laughs> uh, or, you know, all the washing that needs doing, whatever it might be. Yeah, you know, you're that, not that, thinking about that at the no, top of sore. No, a- absolutely not, no. And I think that there's also something about that experience of fear when you're doing it with other people. You know, you pick up on other, you know, we as humans pick up on other people's emotions really quickly. Uh, thinking of an example, I've got a friend who's absolutely terrified of bees. Um, and whenever there's a bee around her, her response suddenly, you know, results in me being absolutely terrified. Whereas if I, you know, walk past a bee any other day, I'm like, oh, yeah. bees, yes, great great that they're there. So you remind me, my sister's terrified of wasps. Oh. So I spent my entire childhood trying to sort of encourage them to to, to take part in family <laughs> picnic, family picnics and whatever. 
<laughs> but thinking about it, it is an evolutionary and survival sense. You know, learning from other people's experiences of fear is a fast track to, you know, flight and fight responses. You're learning about the world that we all live in together. And I guess that's also why people get together and watch a scary film, that you experience that in the same room as other people. Yeah, you know, we're social creatures, as we've been learning about. Um, So fear is about modulating and managing fear Mm -hmm. as a response, if you like, to something that's going on around us. It's all about control, really, as far as I can see. So if our thinking brain can reassure us just enough that we're okay Mm. in a situation, then we can relax and we can enjoy Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs or whatever (laughs) it might be. Um, but, But too much reassurance... And we sort of analyse the fun out of it. You know, we all know someone who who ruins a good horror movie with, uh, you know, well, that would never happen in the real world. <laughs> They'd or, never go down that dark hole. <laughs> exactly. Um, but similarly, not enough reassurance from our thinking brain and we're back to feeling terrified again. Mm. And I think everyone's, you know, got a different context to it as well, which is why some people are super comfortable with, you know, a bit of a scare fest and others will avoid the experience at all costs. I'm definitely not one for watching a horror film. I will um, either leave the room or hide behind my Sudoku game. Killer um, Sudoku. Killer Sudoku, <laughs> which is a very good game if anyone wants to, <laughs> to give that a go. But, you know, I'm in control of deciding whether or not I want to engage in that scare in most cases, I will choose not to. But, you know, I guess what happens if you can't avoid or control the situations? Like what happens if you, you can't leave the room um, from mm. your fear? Yeah, I mean, that you, you know, we start talking about a slightly darker side of fear mm. now. Um, so putting the fun to be had from being frightened aside, you know, if the threat doesn't pass or, or we can't control it through fight or flight and we experience prolonged exposure, you know, maybe during, during conflict or... Yeah. Um, you know, in, a, in an abusive relationship, for example, then we can experience real significant distress uh, in our lives. Mm. You know, our thinking brain becomes much less effective at calming down our instinctive brain, mm. which can result in more permanent conditioned fear responses, uh, you know, such as anxiety and phobias and and post traumatic stress disorders and so on. And you know, these can be devastating. Yeah. Uh, the, the good news is that they are increasingly treatable through you know, new approaches to psychotherapy and, and medications if necessary. But um, yeah, there is a dark side to fear for sure. Yeah, a really good point, Jez. And, you know, we've both been thinking about this. Is there anything that you're afraid of? You know, I've never experienced sort of conflict or war. Uh, I've never been attacked, mm. touch wood, or been held hostage, either literally or, or, or by a phobia or such. So but there are a couple of thoughts that spring to mind and, and actually I've not really thought about it in any detail before. So I've, I think it's been quite interesting sort of exploring kind of episodes where I've been frightened. So I remember one in particular, I was on a family holiday in the south of France. It must have been the early 80s. So I was about 10 years old, I would imagine, something mm. like that. And I, I got caught in a rip current and was dragged out into the sea. You know, huge, big, rough Atlantic rollers, these big waves crashing yeah. and breaking. And I was... I was very quickly getting into real trouble and I there's no two ways about it. I would have drowned had my mum and my uncle mm. not managed to get to me and kind of get me out. So the experience itself, in the, and it can only have lasted five minutes max, yeah. but that was terrifying. Um, but because of where we were, we were camping next to the sea. Right. We, had, we were there for two weeks 
and you know, and all our families and friends and what have you wanted to be by the beach. So we had kept coming back every day, mm. and all I could hear then for the remaining sort of ten, twelve days for, for for most of each day were these huge crashing waves. So you could hear the waves even yeah. when you weren't directly on the beach. So the threat had gone. Yeah. I wasn't actually at risk anymore, but no. it, it was a horrific experience, and it was prolonged. So I've never really thought about it. You know, we came back, I got over it, life moves on. Um, yeah. But I don't like swimming in rough sea. No. I don't like swimming in the sea in general, actually, even if it's fairly calm. Mm. Um, and I'm a really nervous parent when my kids are Go in running the, in. Or in the sea in particular, even if it's, you know, north Somerset coast, mild, you know, mild weather, mm. um, lo- lovely long flat beach with, a, you know, very shallow for a long way out. So the risk is really not there at all. No. But And yet I am on sort of constant alert when they were down there for sure. Yeah. Interestingly, swimming pools don't seem to bother me at all. So it's definitely something that's contextual around that particular experience. No, interesting. Mm. What about you, Amelia? Well, I do have quite a deep fear of birds. I have to say you will not find me stood at Piccadilly Circus with my arms, you know, (laughs) spread out and bird feed all over me, inviting inviting 200 pigeons to come flying onto my head. Um, I do find them absolutely terrifying. And, you know, as you were saying earlier about sort of those physical responses that your body has, that sort of alertness um, increase and heart rate increasing, all that sort of thing. That really resonated with me because I feel like as I'm walking around and, you know, London is a a pigeon-fuelled city. Everywhere. Everywhere. I feel like I clock where birds are in my vicinity much quicker than the people around me. I saw you spot one on the walk over here. (laughs) Exactly. I will go as far as crossing the road to avoid confrontation with pigeons Mm. a couple, you know, 30 metres ahead if that means not having to come into confrontation with them. Was there an experience then in your past, in your youth perhaps, that Mm. do you think that has sort of given you this kind of almost conditioned fear response? I was in year six, so what, 10, 11 years old, and we went on a school trip to this place called the Wetland Centre, of which um, I came into confrontation with a goose that, you know, wings came flapping up, sort of chest puffed. um, And my memory of it is that I was chased round and round for about five minutes, but it probably was, you know, only a couple of seconds. That was number one that I think started it all off. But can you remember a time prior to that when you were okay with birds? Yes, actually, good point. Um, I grew up by the river and feeding the birds with my parents and my younger brother on a weekend used to be a enjoyable experience. Like taking bread down for the ducks. Yeah, taking, yeah exactly. Yeah. But I, um, I will not be doing that anytime soon. <laughs> Your fear of birds and you know my fear of rough seas, I think um, they're good examples of almost permanent conditioned fear responses to perceive threats that are in a way that perhaps is sort of almost you know, either inappropriate or maybe irrational given the actual risk. Yeah. You know, those are phobias, really. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, look, Amelia, you and I could talk for hours about what we've <laughs> learned about fear yeah. over the last few weeks looking into it, but I think it's time we brought an expert in. Should we, should we welcome our guest? Yes, absolutely. I'm really excited about this one. Um, our guest today is um, a lady called Vicky Anstey who has done some incredible things in her lifetime. Um, She was one of the first ever female contestants on Channel 4's 
um, SAS Who Dares Wins programme. Um, and she also set a new world record for rowing unaided across the Pacific Ocean. Um, but throwing herself into, you know, these sorts of challenges wasn't always the person that she was. So we've invited Vicky here today to help explore the role that fear has played in her life, both from a positive and negative perspective, and how these experiences have enhanced her into the woman she is today. Welcome, Vicky, then, to the Being Human podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to be talking to you today um, and learning more about all of the things you do. Before we dive into all things your world, we wondered whether it would be okay to ask you just a couple of questions to get to know you as a person first. Of course, yeah. Go ahead. So, Vicky, if you had to choose one song to be the theme song for your life, what would it be and why? Oh, that's a really hard one. Um I'm a huge lover of Fleetwood Mac, so maybe something like Landslide, which is a little bit about overcoming adversity. I'm casting my mind back to tracks that I had lined up on my playlist for the row. Something inside so strong, maybe. Who was that? It was Labby Sifri, wasn't it, that one? Was yeah. It? yeah. Keeps you motivated. Yeah. Who has been the biggest influence in your life and why? Oh, that's another hard one, actually. Uh, I'm not going to say who it was, someone very close to me. And actually, they've been a positive influence, perhaps not for the reasons that you would expect, but a reminder to me of the importance of being uh, resilient and facing fear and embracing fear and Mm. living your life fully from the inside out, not outside looking in. Uh, that person has inspired me, certainly in my later years as well, to tread a different path, let's say. Mm. Vicky, could you share with us one really boring thing about you that people would be surprised to hear about? I'm quite a stickler for routine. I, I get quite upset if I have to break my strict routines in my day or my week. Like the question about which which way round you have the toilet roll. Exactly. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Always on the outside. Always on the outside. Always. I, on yes, the outside. I totally agree. If I go to you know somewhere else, I use a, a bathroom <laughs> in a pub or a restaurant or someone else's house. If it's do you the change wrong way it? Around, I'd, yeah, I do. Yes, <laughs> I'm so the same. So the same. I think that's an excellent, boring but entertaining conversation. Brilliant. So, if we could send you back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, um, write your own label in life don't listen to other people's narratives about who you are um or what your life should look like write your own label wonderful nice i like that a lot (laughs) so vicky first question sort of diving into your world could we start by asking you how you define fear what is fear I define fear as actually being opportunity in disguise, which is something that I've uh, had the privilege to discover for myself through my own life experiences. Any time that I've ever had the courage to lean into fear, there's been incredible opportunity on the other side. I mean, obviously, it is a normal chemical response to what we might perceive as danger, but danger is uh, entirely subjective. So. Um, there are ways to kind of reframe fear and see it as a choice 
definitely discover opportunity that lies on the other side of it. Yeah, very true. So, I mean, and you're someone that people might describe as seemingly fearless. You've rode across the Pacific. You've stood up against uh, Ant Milton and Foxy in SAS Who Dares Wins. You've, there's numerous other intrepid activities, which we're looking forward to hearing more about in a, in a moment. But you shared with us that that wasn't always you. Um, so could we ask you to sort of you know, share a little bit about who you used to be and how and, and perhaps why you, you've become the person you are today? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not fearless. So let me just kind of clarify that before I say anything more. But I have a different approach to fear these days. And certainly in the last six or so years of my life, um, have seen quite dramatic change. The context of my childhood was feeling like I was a disappointment in many ways, particularly to my mother, that I didn't sort of fit the mold of the ideal daughter that she was uh expecting um Mm. and you know I I kind of always craved the love and support and unconditional approval that she quite determinedly showed my sister I didn't ever really feel that I I got that and from there I guess perhaps typically I then went on to spend 20 years of my life in quite a limiting relationship so a marriage that ultimately led me to believe that I wasn't very capable person Mm. um and certainly that I would amount to nothing on my own. Um, and, you know, it really was only as I approached my 40th birthday that I suddenly had chance to kind of reflect. And I guess I reached a kind of tipping point at that point and just realized that I had the right to choose what the next chapter of my life would look like. I didn't want it to look the way it did anymore. I knew that doing nothing was still doing something, that what I wasn't changing, I was ultimately choosing. Um, and so, yeah, that was my big, big first lean into fear. Uh, and it was really terrifying. It was everything that I'd known since I was 19 years old. Um, and you know, I didn't even have my own bank account until that stage when I, when I left that marriage. So, you know, I had really allowed myself to be limited by other people's narratives my whole life, really. I kind of lived in this ecosystem of unsupportive behavior and was always just holding out for other people's approval. So yeah, I, I, you know, at that stage, I, I kind of lost all my instincts to trust myself and to make small decisions at times and to believe in my power. And I think it was only through, I had a change of career. So I, I originally worked in marketing and advertising, but I changed that career to my own surprise as much as anyone else's and, <laughs> and got into the fitness industry. And, uh, and I, I ran my own business for 12 years. Um, and I guess through that process of, you know, needing to improve my, my physical strength, I also saw the carryover into my mental and emotional reserves. Um, Mm. so I kind of grew new edges, I guess. And, and yeah, I I guess at the age of 40, I just, got to this stage where I was I I just knew that I had to make a change so I did and I left and fairly soon afterwards I I was encouraged by some friends to apply for SAS I was going to ask you about that there were others around you that sort of reflected back the need to change as well yeah I think you know I've got incredible friends and I think they just believed in my power more than I did I you know it's funny how you can have physical strength and be seen to be thriving in life in other people's eyes but on the inside you're emotionally in in a very different space 
that was certainly true for me. I think two almost contradictory things can coexist in the same space. And that's, I guess, where I was. I was physically very capable, but I didn't believe in myself. Mm. Um, that process allowed me to see that my self-belief could be a match for my physical capabilities in the end. It was hugely eye-opening, quite life-changing for me. You were one of the first female contestants on SAS Who Dares Wins. Um, for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the show, would you mind just briefly explaining sort of what that involved? Uh, so, I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's probably one of the biggest tests of performance against adversity uh, out there. It, it, it's kind of the closest thing that um, you can get to SAS selection mm. for, you know, civi- civilians. Um it's, it certainly isn't, just to clarify, uh, the same as SAS selection. And I certainly do not think that anyone who passes SAS who dares win selection would necessarily therefore make it into the SAS. Mm. Very far from it. However, it's a pretty close reenactment of the selection process. So you're basically just put through your paces um, to undertake the most physically, mentally challenging tasks imaginable, really, from you know, heights, dealing with water, uh, endurance, and then mental interrogation as well. My heart's um, beginning to race <laughs> just, listening, just listening to you. What did you enjoy most about the experience? I mean, I got a huge sense of self-discovery from that program. Like, I realised what my capabilities were. I, I genuinely went into it thinking, if I last 24 hours, I'll be amazed. Mm. Um, you know, I couldn't quite believe that I'd even been selected to do it in the first place. It was the first year that women were allowed to participate in the program. Mm. And also I was 40 years old. So there were people on that show who were 20 years younger than me. So mm. at times I was like, this is actually not as bad as some of the darkest moments of my divorce. Even mm. when I was sat in a dark room with a bag on my head and earphones and being verbally interrogated, it still in many ways wasn't as bad as some of the reality of my life had been until that point. That sounds like you was, it was quite a lot of cognitive reflection going on in the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I remember one of the worst times actually was not a specific task necessarily, but I remember at one point sitting on my camp bed and, of course, you get a certain amount of time off, but you never know how long that time's going to last. Mm. So it could be five minutes, it could be two hours, you could be eating some food or you could be <laughs> on the toilet, such as they were. Um, yeah. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I can deal with the anxiety of the unknown and just this constant high adrenaline state. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I can deal with this all the time. I mean, literally, it could be 3 a.m. and you'd be ripped out of your bed and screamed at and yeah. taken outside. So, And then I guess just stage by stage getting further through it, I realized actually... I just need to get on with this. And once I'm doing the thing, it's never as bad as thinking about the thing. We'd sort of arrive at certain location points and we'd see the setup for something. You'd think, oh, hell, we're going to be abseiling down that. And then it was actually a forward abseil. So everything that you kind of thought you could second guess was completely incorrect. Mm. Uh, There was always something that they pulled out that was completely unexpected. But it teaches you to just, stop asking questions and stop needing to have information and I think that's a huge skill to have and when I take people away on my trips with We Are Intrepid that's one thing that I you know I won't let people know when 
breakfast is, when lunch is, uh, what we're doing next, even day to day, what the schedule looks like. I want people to live in the moment because when you are present, there's no space for fear. Fear only exists in in relation to what's gone before and what you're afraid of in the future. Mm. When you're really present, you can't feel fear unless you are in direct fear, which yeah, let's yeah. face it, we, we almost never yeah. are. Exactly. We never are in direct fear or peril these days. What I infer from that is that, you know, a lot of our response to fear is irrational. Um, yeah, absolutely. And therefore it's yes. about sort of taking ownership of that back yeah. and dragging your sort of cognitive response into a more rational place. Yeah, absolutely. It's about mm. addressing it. I encourage people on my trips to, you know, really delve into that, understand what the fear is, strip the layers away, mm. ask themselves, ask each other questions. Well, what really are you afraid of? Yeah. Give it a name. Uh, even even make fun of it, you know, collapse, collapse it at its core, undermine that fear because you are not your thoughts wise words you can overcome anything <laughs> i know that as you're saying that i'm still thinking my fear of birds isn't going anywhere <laughs> so i'm okay. like what is it what do i name it <laughs> we'll work on it amelia we'll work on it well i mean you know i grew up thinking that i had a fear of water because i had a near drowning incident when i was a child with my sister but this actually sounds familiar. i um and i had some cognitive behavioral therapy before i did the row because I was terrified that I'd be overwhelmed by the fear once I lost sight of land or even just, you know, realized the enormity of what I was doing. And, um, and through that process, I worked out that actually I wasn't afraid of water. And in fact, I can swim. And because I'm physically quite strong, I, I'm quite capable in water. Mm. But I, I was terrified of hurting someone else. Mm. Um, and I, I, my fear had wrapped itself in so much guilt that at the age of six years old, I'd um, panicked in response to the situation I was in and pulled my sister under so that I could get above the water to breathe myself. And then she had to do the same to me. And so this kind mm. of trauma that created the fear in the first place um, occurred and that was real. But actually throughout my whole life since then, my brain has played clever games keeping me away from water. As you mentioned, you know, water, could you share with us about your adventure across the Pacific Ocean? Um, how did that present itself? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I basically was at a PR event, a press event for SAS Who Does Wins, and someone literally came up to me and said, would you like to row an ocean? And A, a light question. <laughs> yeah, and I was just in the throes of this whole new world where I'd just been confronted with what my real capabilities were and loved it and just discovered that saying yes to things was pretty thrilling. Mm. I'm interested. I'm really interested in that. The, the answering the call to adventure when it yeah. arrives. Yeah. Well, I have this acronym that I use, which is ready. And the whole idea that you can be laying down the foundations for being ready for opportunity when it mm. comes to you. Uh, and there are ways that we can do that. And I sort of subconsciously was doing that for many, many years mm. until I got to the people often ask me, how long did it take you to prepare for SAS Who Does Wins? Well, I had literally two weeks notice. So I didn't have any time. I just was lucky ready. that I was ready mm. to take that opportunity. And so glad that I was in a position to do that because my life has markedly changed since that. It was sort of, you know, the original 
catalyst, I guess, for everything else. But yeah, so I'd done SAS and there was there was one event during that program that I felt I really, I guess, let myself down a bit that I hadn't, I felt like I'd really overcome my fear of heights and I discovered a lot of my capabilities, but the water had um, had literally overcome me and, and the, the very scenario that I described earlier with uh, my sister when I was a child kind yeah. of played out and uh, and I panicked and had to be dragged out of the water and nearly drowned and had to get medical attention and it was awful and uh, quite traumatic and quite humiliating and so I just thought when when this girl asked me would I like to row an ocean my immediate thought was well this is my opportunity to really address this barrier in my yeah. life that I feel like is preventing me from doing potentially so many things. And so, yeah, I said yes. And I thought I'll work the rest out afterwards. And yeah, then began what ultimately was three years uh, of a project to get to the start line. What did you learn through that experience, would you say, of rowing across the ocean? I mean, it was an incredible experience. It was also a very difficult experience for me mm. because I had to completely change the crew um, after the postponement in 2020. I had to find two new crewmates because the girls that I was planning to row with weren't able to defer their places. So, right. And the two girls that I rowed with already knew each other, were already friends. And it became a very, very difficult dynamic. We're very different people. Uh, I'm quite emotionally open and they were both you know, quite emotionally closed, I think, um, took a very kind of functional approach to what we were doing. Mm. Um, I don't think we were helped by the circumstances mm. with COVID, the fact that we were in three different countries, the fact that we couldn't really get together to train, the fact that I didn't meet one of them until we actually got to San Francisco on the start line. Wow. Um, so there were a lot of factors. Um, I was seasick then for 23 days. Blimey. Uh, which was debilitating. The only thing I could do was row. That was the only thing that made me feel better. So I was taking nothing into my system, really, and uh, rowing 12 to 16 hour days. Um, and, you know, the dynamic, I think, was quite affected by that, amongst other things. And, and we kind of just became this team of two plus one. Yeah, And so it was very isolating for me, if I'm honest. Um, and I, but I think what I learned from that, a really valuable life lesson was how to sit with my own thoughts and my own feelings and how to um, process them and how to constantly regain perspective. Um, and yeah, how to get through what I what I call emotional endurance. So people always talk mm. about physical endurance and mental endurance, even that emotional endurance, like that's a whole other game. I had to tolerate a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and and yet in the background, you know, we obviously achieved this incredible goal together. We got a world record. We yeah. survived. No one got badly injured. No one fell in. Well, I was tempted to throw myself in a few cases. <laughs> you know, nobody wanted to quit, but we just, we hadn't really spent the time together. We hadn't spent the time understanding each other where our boundaries lay. We certainly hadn't really honestly uh, understood each other's true purpose. Yeah. Mm. Given the time again, what would you do differently in which case? 
I mean, firstly, I wouldn't do it again. Uh, <laughs> I've already got a tick in that box. I have no intention. <laughs> I was so determined to do it. And this mm. is where I think, you know, I am a pretty stubborn, determined person. When I get an idea in my head, I won't ever give up. And and I think sometimes that isn't always a great trait. Um, and it, it kind of blinkered me to a lot of things. That's there are a lot of red flags. And, uh, mm. you know, I was so utterly determined to do this thing and it had been delayed by a year and I'd spent by the time we started three years you know raising the finance I I knew nothing about ocean rowing absolutely nothing I had to learn everything from scratch from you know aspects of engineering and mechanics to weather patterns and going out and asking for sponsorship and having to deal with my fear of water, having to do open water swimming, having to do cognitive behavioral therapy, having to do BHF radio communication. There were so many aspects to it that, you know, and I was running my own business. I had a full-time job. We all did. It was a huge amount of um, investment and sacrifice involved. And and I guess I just wasn't prepared to see it fail. Uh you know, so I so I guess what we didn't do was ask difficult enough questions yeah. of ourselves and each right. other. And I think I was afraid to push some of those questions, even though instinctively I knew that we should be sharing our fears and our vulnerabilities on a far deeper level to go out and do something like that. But I was so afraid that it would unravel before we'd even set off. Mm. Um, what I didn't account for was that it would unravel anyway in the middle of an ocean. But as you say, you made it across in record time. We did, which oh, is testament amazing, to yeah. yeah, what human beings can do. I mean, between us, we lost 35 kilos in weight. Wow. I lost 20, 25% of my body weight. Um, you know, we broke three oars. We, by the end of it, were rowing four hours on and two hours off. Um, we were out there for 60 days, 17 hours, six minutes. That's not a number you know, you're ever going to forget, no, is it? No, no. certainly isn't. Uh, you know, we used a bucket for a toilet for that entire length of time. And uh, I bet, you know, when you tell the story, people, particularly children, they'll ask you, how did you go to the loo? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny. The funniest questions people ask are, what did you do when it rained? <laughs> did you row at night? Like as if you suddenly had the opportunity to step onto a super yacht. Yeah. Um, oh, and people want to see pictures of your hands and your bum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vicky, lots of people feel a sense of anxiety in their personal or professional lives. You know, a bit of imposter syndrome, self-doubt, failure, being labelled, you mentioned earlier on, unhelpful comparisons with others yeah. and so on. What advice would you give to others perhaps looking to take the first steps into changing how they feel, bearing in mind that not everyone has the opportunity to perhaps undertake some of the incredible <laughs> adventures that you have? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I didn't think I was the type of person to undertake those things either um, a while ago. So who knows? But I think I think the thing that creates that sense of imposter syndrome is like overwhelm and and I think what's really important to know is that I use this phrase you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step mm. and it's so simple if you can break it down whatever it is mm. and start to get obsessed about the process rather than the outcome then you'll find yourself on the path to something new and things will start changing inevitably because you've just set yourself, you've just taken that first step. Um, 
you know, so it could be just having conversations and so many of the endeavors that I've taken on, I thought, what the hell am I doing? I know nothing about this. And that's now become my driver. So I will only ever take on endeavors that I feel like I'm not qualified to do. Mm. Uh, almost as a means to prove to myself and others that that can be done. But just to have a conversation with someone who might have already done it can completely open your eyes to the fact that the people you think who do these amazing things in life aren't necessarily who you think they are. Mm. They don't look the way that you think they might look or I remember having many different conversations with particularly women who had rowed oceans before we did our row. And just the comfort that I drew from having Zoom calls mainly with people, I just thought, God, you don't look the way that I thought you might look. I, I expected to get on this call and, and feel completely uh, inadequate <laughs> and intimidated and uh well do you know what maybe if you can do it then I can do it or at least I can have a go and I think that just the fear of failure stops us from doing so many things there's a theme as well coming through that I'm picking up on which is the this um challenge yourself but also talk to others yeah it's explore how you're feeling and learn from their experiences as well uh, seek out people that have done things exactly and I think anyone who is vulnerable enough to pick up the phone and say I wonder if you could have a conversation with me about this I'm terrified of doing it what they'll find is that anyone that they might be speaking to who's done the thing <laughs> will also have gone through those exact same emotions yeah. and, and processes and felt uh, like an imposter themselves at certain times. Mm. And, you know, I think if we can all just be a bit more human in this world and not, I don't know, lead with our egos and, and be about uh, the things that we've achieved, the, the things that I've achieved are not actually the physical endeavors. They're just really the conduit for me. The things I've achieved is, you know, knowing that I, I need to write my own label in life and that I can trust in my inner strength and that I can trust in the lessons that adversity delivers they're the lessons that I want I'm passionate about sharing with other people in my speaking and, mm. and you know mentoring and coaching and in the trips that I, I run with we are intrepid it's never about the chess beating medal swinging world record stories there's so much more to it than that absolutely well look it's been lovely talking to you as, as always it's uh, certainly opened my eyes yeah thank you so much for your time that was fascinating hearing about what your learnings have been from all these wonderful and amazing experiences that you've been a part of thank you so much i really enjoyed that conversation What a super guest. What struck you as we were talking to Vicky Jazz? Yeah, she's amazing, isn't she? Really inspirational. Yeah, I, for sure. What really struck me was the way in which she has consciously made a decision to to move from that sort of irrational response and to take more control over how she responds to it. Mm. I love the point she made about the fact that it's very, very rare for us to really be in danger or in peril. And so therefore, an awful lot of how we respond to situations is actually quite irrational. As I mentioned earlier, I've not really lived through what I'd call prolonged fear. Yeah. Um, but there have definitely been moments where work, for example, in the past has made me anxious for extended periods of time, You know, whether that was working for an immediate boss who I struggled with or going through change and the threat of redundancy, for example. Um, and in, in those moments, I remember feeling powerless, mm. um, having no control, which, of course, wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, 
But at the time, it was hard to see it that way. So I, you know, listening to Vicky, I think I'm going to try to consciously think about why I might be feeling anxious at any given point um, and explore whether my response to that situation is appropriate or not. What about you, Amelia? What thoughts do you have when you listen to Vicky speak? Yeah, well, I, I think immediately thinking back to my own experiences as she was talking about sort of facing those fears of heights, um, it took me straight back to doing a bungee jump in New oh, yes. Zealand, um, you know, diving headfirst out of a hut and free falling for what feels like a lifetime. Is it's, I did look at it as 8.5 seconds. Um, <laughs> um, but it was absolutely terrifying. And it was especially that moment where you're getting all buckled in um, inside the hut and then you're asked to step onto, you know, the, the, the ledge of the platform. Exactly. And they sort of throw all the ropes that they've attached to you in front of you. And you feel that initial pull of like, that's where I'm going. And that stomach moment just yeah. like, just goes but then you do it and it was one of the most invigorating amazing things I've ever done we're almost at the end of another episode I can't tell you how much I enjoy how these conversations are going roll on the next one yeah me too I'm really excited for the next one um, on the subject of which we will be looking at habits in the not to distant future. So we thought that we should hold ourselves um, accountable and develop a good habit. We'll see if we can give it a go at developing oh a good habit over the next few weeks um, and then talk about that experience as part of our conversation. So, um, Jez, what are you going to, going to have a go at? Here we go. Commitment live. <laughs> I'm going to try and develop the habit of a bit more deliberate guitar practice uh, rather than just picking up my guitar and playing along to songs that I like. So, in short, I'm going to try and move past this plateau that I've been on for probably 20 years or more. Um, mm. And you, Amelia, what habit are you going to try and nurture? Well, one I've really wanted to nurture and failed many a time at doing is to get into a better habit of reading. So I am going to try and read for 15 to 20 minutes every day. Well, let's see how we both get on. Well, that really does bring us to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Being Human podcast. Brought to you by Just Add Water. Nurturing individual brilliance, forging collective strength. Boo! <laughs> oh, that's going to go in the bloopers, isn't it? You actually did scare me. Did I? Yes! Yeah. Am I starting? No, you're starting. No, you're starting. I'm starting. You're starting. I'm starting. <clears throat> okay. Take one. <laughs> did I change that before printing, after printing it? We're, we're not Possibly. blaming him. This isn't a blame culture. God, no. God, no. 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 You're saying it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs>